0: Grace and peace to you and welcome to Faith Lutheran Church. My name is Candace Wassell. I'm the pastor here at Faith. It is such a joy to have you visit with us. You are welcome, so welcome in every part of Faith's community. You are welcome to join us in person at worship on Sundays. You're welcome to visit us online. You're welcome in our mission and our fellowship and most important, You are welcome at the Lord's table.
1: Now, before I start the sermon this morning, a word of thanks to you, and particularly to Pastor Candace for your willingness to share your pulpit for a few weeks. It's been such a pleasure and a joy to be with you and to see the vitality of this congregation. It's just tremendous. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Friends in Christ, grace and peace and joy and love and mercy and grace to you. From God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Today we wrap up our sermon series with this fourth and final message, all under the theme, Footsteps of the Faithful. If you've missed in previous weeks, during this series, we've been exploring the question, what does God want from me in this life? again let's consider we all know that we're commanded by jesus and encouraged by the church to live faithfully but what exactly does faithful living look like what does it mean to walk in the footsteps of the faithful over these four weeks we've been considering the lives of four individual christians four real life people who undoubtedly ask those same questions themselves these four, I remind you, were all just ordinary people, just like you and me. Each of them responded to the call of faith in unique ways. Their faith led them to make choices. And because of their choices, they each become an example of faithful living for us and others. So today our subject is surprise Not a saint or a member of the clergy or somebody who sacrificed their life for Jesus. Today's subject is a painter, a guy with a brush. Before we introduce that painter, Matthias Grunewald, I'd like to start with a little art lesson, though, if I may. I wonder, how many of us are acquainted with the expression artistic license or an artist's license? I bet most of us are familiar with the concept. The idea is that artists don't have to create a photographic reproduction of what they're portraying. They get to give it their own interpretation, right? If a graphic artist wants to show a picture of a forest and all the trees in the forest look like sprigs of broccoli, well, they can do that, of course. If a painter wants to paint a bunch of bananas, but paints the bananas all purple and hot pink, well, that's their right. They can exercise their artistic license and choose to go whatever direction they like. So, painters and sculptors and other artists have a lot of power, don't they? I don't know how much you may have thought about this. The person holding the brush or the computer mouse, or whatever instrument that artist might use gets to create reality for others. Most of the time, this is pretty harmless. Who cares if the trees look like broccoli or the bananas aren't yellow? We all know what real trees and real bananas look like, after all. But what if you've never seen a banana before? What if you've never seen a tree? If that's the case, the broccoli tree is the first tree you've experienced that image shapes your expectations. It becomes for you, your reality. Now let's add another shot of reality to this. It's not only the person holding the brush who gets to create reality for others, but it's also true that sometimes the person paying the person holding the brush gets to create reality for others. I mean, if someone else is powerfully influencing influencing what you think or what you expect about something based on the image they've presented to you, wouldn't it be wise for you to know what their agenda is in presenting that image? Let me give you an important example. Nobody alive today has seen Jesus. We really don't know what Jesus looks like. For that matter, we don't know what God the Father or the Holy Spirit or St. Peter or St. Paul or Mary or Martha or any other biblical character looks like. But artists have given their interpretations or the interpretations that others have paid them to give. I wanna be clear about this. There are agendas at work in these images. I'm not saying those agendas are good or bad. I'm just saying we should always be aware of them. Take these pictures of Jesus as examples. Here's a picture of Jesus. And what surveys tell us is the very most popular way of portraying him. Jesus as the good shepherd. We love the idea that Jesus comes looking for his lost lambs. And if you happen to be the black sheep of your family... Good news, in this picture, Jesus loves you and has a very special smile for you. Jesus is also obviously of European descent, which a lot of us love. Handsome and cheery with rock star hair and strong (laughs) hands. Gotta love that celestial glow around his head. makes it clear that this Jesus is divine, godly, eternal. Compare that Jesus with this one from the 7th or 8th century. Here Jesus is very different. High up in the clouds, surrounded by heavenly creatures, this is Jesus as judge of the world, and he is not smiling. (laughs) He's looking in the hearts and souls of people, and he's finding nothing but disappointment. He's holding in his hands, not a little lamb, but the book of life. And you darn well better hope that your name is found in that book, or you're cooked, if you get my picture. (laughs) Or this Jesus. Oh, gosh. Yes, it's still him with the classic halo to indicate that he's the holy one, and he is ticked off, isn't he? Not merely disappointed, but fiercely angry with those who fail to obey his will. He can't wait for those people to die and stand before him in judgment because they're going to pay. I'm going to bet you're not going to go home and hang this picture of Jesus in your house. (laughs) Then on the other end of the spectrum, there's this one. The Jesus who's cool with you doing whatever you like. I remember the Doobie Brothers song, Jesus is just all right with me. Hey, good news, according to this picture, you're all right with Jesus too. This Jesus will wink at your sins. No worries, all's good. This Jesus says, party on Christians and know that the party's at my place for all eternity. So do you get the picture about this artistic license thing? Are any of these pictures true, accurate, complete depictions of Jesus? Of course not. Each one emphasizes some aspect of Jesus, and each one excludes many other aspects. Taken individually, if they were the only picture of Jesus you'll ever see, Honestly, each one of them could be considered heretical, a false teaching. But truthfully, even viewed together, they are at least misleading and incomplete in what they teach us. Now, we're not talking about trees and bananas here. The images, the artistic depictions of Jesus, we choose to embrace and use not only reflect what we want in a savior, but they can actually shape and continually reinforce what we've decided our savior should be. I've long appreciated the fact that both in the Jewish and the Islamic traditions, it's considered a huge sin to try to portray Jesus or God in an image. This artistic license thing that I'm describing is exactly the danger that those religious laws are addressing. God makes us in God's image great, but when we try to return the favor and we try to make images of God, that is, we try to shape God to conform to what we want in a God, we're on pretty thin ice. Let's take uh, things a step further, shall we? Let's imagine that you and I are all painters today, and we've been given an assignment to make a picture of Jesus. So let me ask the big question here. As an artist, how would you choose to portray our Lord? Wow, as artists, we have some really, really big, important decisions to make about what we want to say about our Lord and Savior. What would we want to emphasize or not about him as represented by the symbols and expressions that we use in our painting? Now, I'm going to make our assignment a lot easier here, friends. For simplicity's sake, we're only going to take on one single aspect of our portrait of Jesus. We're going to focus on what hat we're going to give him to wear. That sound easy enough? We're gonna choose a hat for our Jesus painting, the one that suits him the best in our opinion. So I have some options to consider, are you ready? So some of us might choose this one. A graduate's mortarboard hat might be just right for your picture of Jesus. After all, we believe that our God is all knowing, right? Omniscient, a mortarboard hat is a symbol for being knowledgeable of academic accomplishment. What do you think? A good choice? Or you might choose this hat, a police officer's hat. Is your Jesus all about right and wrong? About enforcing the law? I just read a comment online about how Jesus wants us to live according to the Ten Commandments he gave us. Uh, Wrong half of the Bible, I'm afraid, but good for a laugh. Is your Jesus all about controlling behavior? For some of us, we might choose a chef's hat for Jesus, representing the Jesus who provides for our physical sustenance. Do you remember after Jesus fed the 5,000 in the countryside, a little bread, a few fish, the crowd was ready to make him their king, so they'd always have enough to eat, Or maybe you'd prefer that Jesus wear this kind of hat. The old school doctor's reflected light mirror. Jesus, the healer. Jesus who comforts me in my time of illness. Jesus, the one who can make my sickness go away. Maybe it's the Jesus of the second opinion or the healer of last resort, but healer just the same. And then there's this kind of hat, the magician's hat. Holy cats, Jesus, you who turns water into wine and calms the storm, I sure hope you got a good one up your sleeve for me. Work a miracle for me here, Jesus. Would you like your portrait of Jesus to have this hat? Or how about this one, a crown? Jesus, the king of heaven, Jesus sitting on a cloud or returning on a cloud in majesty and wonder, Jesus, the king of the universe, all-powerful. Some of us would surely vote for this hat, while others might be more comfortable with this one. A Puritan's hat. Because wasn't Jesus all about purity? about knowing the rules and following them, and better yet, the followers of Jesus get to enforce those rules on those around them. Some Christians love that idea that faithfulness is all about making sure that everybody lives by their rules. This would be a good hat to choose if you're in that camp, right? But of all the hats we might choose for our portrait of Jesus, remarkably enough, The one I suspect would be most popular would be this one, (laughs) a Santa hat. It tells us that Jesus is the one we go to with our wish list. It suggests that it's Jesus' job to make us happy, to fill our stockings and our lives with sweet things. I know there are Christians who would choose this hat. Christians who believe that Jesus is concerned about and working hard to achieve their personal prosperity. Oh yeah, I want that Jesus hat for sure. Well Matthias Grunewald was a painter who actually did paint a picture of Jesus and that picture of Jesus would not be complete until Grunewald put, gave Jesus something just right to wear on his head. Grunewald lived in the late 15th and early 16th centuries. You might guess from his name that he lived in Germany, and his life overlapped in years with another famous German, a Roman Catholic monk, priest, and theologian named Martin Luther, architect and founder of the Protestant Reformation that we celebrate this Reformation Sunday. While we can't be certain that the two of them ever met, there's no question that Luther would have wholeheartedly agreed with what Grunewald chose to put on Jesus' head. Guess what? It wasn't any of the hats that I showed you. Not a one of them would have been right. What Grunewald painted on Jesus' head was this, a crown of thorns a symbol of great suffering and shame, a symbol of torture and humiliation. And this crown of thorns is only one of the many surprising elements that Grunewald chose to include in his painting of Jesus. And what a painting it is. More accurately, it's a set of paintings, at least 10 different panels that illustrate various scenes of the life Death and Resurrection of Jesus. It's called the Eisenheim Altarpiece, completed in 1515. Here you can see it on display in the Eisenheim Chapel. It's huge, with some of the painted panels attached like wings on the outside edges that can be opened and closed to display different images. It took several years to paint. The biblical figures on it are painted life size. Here's John the Baptist pointing to Jesus and saying, "I must decrease and he must increase." And at his feet is a little lamb with blood squirting out of its neck into a communion chalice, representing Jesus as the Lamb of God, sacrificed for our salvation. But you know, central to it all is this stunning picture of Jesus dying or dead on the cross. It's impossible to imagine, it's impossible to ignore the horror of the crucifixion, the agony that Jesus has experienced. Now other painters up to this time had chosen very different approaches in portraying Jesus. Good heavens, Grunewald, why not this one? With Jesus glorified in heaven, supreme in power, transcendent in wonder and light, far removed from the pain and agony of his human existence. Or this one, come on, Grunewald, Why not stick with the images of the risen Christ, resurrected to live among the saints on another more fantastic and glorious plane of existence? But no. Grunewald had a different agenda to work at work in the Eisenheim altarpiece, a very specific agenda. Instead, he chose to include the most gruesome aspects Of uh, I'm sorry, the most gruesome aspects of Jesus on the cross. Hands and feet contorted in agonizing pain, blood dripping from the spikes driven through living flesh. And absolutely everywhere on Jesus' body, writhing and emaciated, wherever his skin is seen, he is covered with sores and riddled with thorns, unbelievable and horrific agony there's simply no other way to put it which begs the question good heavens grunewald among all the countless ways you could define our lord through your painting why such a gruesome and grotesque jesus well why indeed it turns out that grunewald had a very good reason for the choices he made the artistic license He exercised. You see, the Eisenheim altarpiece had been commissioned by the monks of the Monastery of St. Anthony in Eisenheim. And those monks had a very special ministry, a truly exceptional calling to serve Christ by caring for the sick. And particularly those suffering from the medical horrors of the time, bubonic plague and skin diseases especially from ergotism, a dreadful disease that came from eating fungus-infected grains, a common part of the diet of the poor in the Middle Ages. The disease is also known as ergotoxicosis. Sound bad? Ergot poisoning and St. Anthony's fire and it's manifested by dreadful sores all over one's body and a dry, gangrenous disfigurement of the fingers and toes. It was awful. So the monks of St. Anthony knew their patience, and they knew those patients didn't need some pie in the sky and the sweet by and by Jesus. Jesus, far removed from the sorrows and cares of this world, glorified in heaven, not helpful. And they didn't need some pretty boy Jesus like this incredibly popular depiction of Jesus from 1940 that we can find in churches and homes and Bible bookmarks anywhere we look. Uh, no. The desperately ill and suffering souls of Eisenheim needed a Jesus who knew what it was to suffer horribly. Who could relate to their agony. Who'd been there himself in the very pits of despair and misery that they themselves were now enduring. They needed a Jesus who was in the pit with them, full of empathy, full of compassion, offering them courage and comfort and hope in the midst of their grief and anguish. And that's the Jesus this man gave them. This is Matthias Grunewald himself, We know what he looks like, even 500 years later because he painted himself into the Eisenheim altarpiece where he, too, is suffering, depicted as St. Sebastian. St. Sebastian was an early Christian sentenced to death by a firing squad of Roman archers for the crime of sharing the story of Jesus with his fellow Roman soldiers. He's in the panel to the left of the crucifixion scene in the altarpiece. So is it horrific, Grunewald's painting? Grotesque? A horror show? Yes, it's all of these things. And at the same time, I think it is an incredible illustration of grace that Grunewald created. Grace, God's undeserved love. Grace, the cornerstone and foundation of our relationship with God. Grace, the essence of the gospel and the very definition of Christ's compassion. That seeing us in our sin, destined to eternal separation from God and God's love, Jesus set aside the throne and crown and power of heaven. For what? To take on human form. To be with us in our sorrow, with us in our suffering, with us in our worries and our despair and our challenges of every sort. Jesus knows what it is to be human, a puny, mortal human. And Jesus honors that and redeems that and lifts us up in spite of our sins, our failures. I don't know about you, but that's exactly what I need in a savior. Today and every day, I think Grunewald chose exactly the right thing to put on Jesus' head. A clear and certain sign of grace and good news that in Christ, God is with us. God is with you in your trials and tribulations. God is with you in life and in death. God is with you in all of your tomorrows. And God not only walks with you, but in holy and amazing love, God gives you salvation. Not because you're so good, but because God is so good. And friends, there's no truer or more beautiful picture than that. In Jesus' name, amen.
0: Amen. The most valuable message we have to share at faith is the promise we have in Jesus. We come together every Sunday to share this good news in the reading of scripture and sharing of Holy Communion. It is these two acts of worship that we learn of the forgiveness, peace, and joy that Jesus has won for us on the cross. These gifts also belong to you, and we hope you will feel welcome to receive them. After we've shared worship together, we trust that we are ready to be sent out into the world to serve our neighbor, and you're welcome to join us in that great work as well. There are so many opportunities at faith to be the hands and feet of Jesus in the world. It's what we feel called to do. It's what we're passionate about. Above all, I want to encourage you in your faith. No matter where you're at, In your journey with Christ, you are welcome to visit faith as often as you are able. But whatever you do, keep searching. There is a church family set aside just for you. And I trust the Holy Spirit will place you right where you need to be.